Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody. Today, Rado rounds up the month of March 2020, which, of course, has been an absolutely insane month. I'm sure for you as well. Although, I'll be honest, the what do you call it, the social distancing, the uh, self-imposed quarantine, or in some case, government-controlled quarantines, I suppose, honestly really haven't affected me and Jen or my mom, who lives with us very much. I mean, we pretty much continue to do what we always do. Stay home, stay away from people, walk the dogs, and play a lot of games and film a few while Jen makes glass and sends it around the world. So... We, we're incredibly lucky here at Shea Ham, Shea Rado, and uh, hopefully you will enjoy hearing about 22 new games that Jen and I played over the last four weeks. All right, let's uh, get, get back to business. Uh, and as always, this is going to be a countdown. I will start the list off with my least favorite game of the month and end with my most favorite, the new game of the month. Uh, if you're paying attention, you probably already know what it is, but I will try to maintain an air of mystery as we count down. So... Let's get going, starting with my number 22 of the month, Gloomy Graves, which is a fairly abstract game where players are grave diggers um, uh, 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 trying to dig mass graves. Now that I think about it, wow. This is maybe not the best. Well, we played it, so... I will I will talk about it anyway. Okay, so uh, this, this, half this game is card drafting. The rest is card laying, you know, splaying cards on top of each other. Players have their own private grave, mass grave they're building, and then there's a public one. And you're trying to lay these cards out such that they cover up previous cards so that you can match the contents of your mass grave with the communal mass grave. Wow, like I said, wow. Considering some of the stuff we're seeing on the news. But yeah, um, it's, it's, it's a very silly... It's basically a bunch of fantasy creatures who have been wiped out after you know one of those big Lord of the Rings final epic battles, and you're just cleaning up the battlefield. But yeah, it's it's got kind of a grim, dark sense of humor to it. It's actually a very, very sharp game uh, because a big part of the game is trying to make matching big areas in my tight little grave and on the big communal grave so I can score bigger and bigger points and kind of pushing your luck, hoping I can get one more card down and then score more and more points before you interfere. Because since we're both playing to the communal area, at any given time, the big group of cards I've built could get split in half by you, and then suddenly my points get cut in half. And it works. It's a sharp game from designer Tom... Uh, not Tom Lehman. Oh, oh, shoot. Mr... Oh, oh, man. This is... All right, I'm just going to have to look it up. I am so embarrassed. Uh, Gloomy Graves. Go, go, Board Game Geek. The designer of Gloomy Graves is not Tom Lehman. Is Jeffrey Allers. How did I mix those two guys up? I love a lot of Jeffrey's designs. And I thought this was a very good design, too. The reason it comes in so high on the list is... Really, this is a game that is going to be better with more players. With only two, you miss out on a big part of, I think, what this experience is. Because if there are three players, two players might both have a vested interest in trying to make a big area of 
dead unicorns, let's say, so they can both score, and before the third player can get in on it, then the two players, who temporarily were kind of allied, now want to chop it up. But then, alliances could shift all over the place as players work on things that other players are left out of, and other players are trying to scramble. So, I really do think, while the core gameplay is very good, as a two-player game, it was just a little bit too dry. And of course, I don't know, these days, the whole subject matter is uh, you know taking on a slightly grimmer view than, than uh, Jeffrey originally intended. So, uh, still, like I said, sharp game with a very dark sense of humor if you enjoy that kind of thing. And if you've got three plus players and you like tile laying, both private and communal, there's a lot of neat ideas in my number 22, Gloomy Graves. Then we move on to 21, Frankie's Rockin' Vegas, which is a, a Yahtzee style. Hey, on my turn, I roll a bunch of dice and then I set some aside, I re-roll, and I keep on re-rolling until I stop, and hopefully all the dice I've rolled will score very uh, well for me. And you've seen this in a lot of games, but you have never seen anything quite like Frankie's Rockin' Vegas, because this thing, as best I can describe it, emulates kind of a Vegas craps, really complex, surprisingly intricate casino-style game, where there are almost a half a dozen different ways you can score points, and you are rolling and re-rolling a lot of dice. And, um, you know... Uh, you, no matter which what, whatever you roll right up front, you're going to have to make decisions that are very tricky because this game really leverages several different ways to push your luck in terrifying ways. Uh, because there's a couple of special dice you're rolling in addition to all the Frankie dice. The Frankie dice are simple. You ma- you get a matching colored head with a matching colored body and some electricity. You've reanimated a Frankie corpse and score some points. So you, you could be rolling and re-rolling, try to do that. But there are these other dice that radically change the rules. And when you lock those dice in, you have fundamentally different ways of scoring. And both of them are big money if you... Um, if you push your luck towards those, you can score huge points. And if you fail, you can totally bust. And, you know, it's it's appropriate, I think, this subject matter, because it does feel like, what would a casino craps gambling-style game be in the fictional world of... Um, oh, what's that Adam Sandler animated uh, cartoon film? The Transylvania Games? Because this feels like something a bunch of monsters would play. It's... Very, like I said, surprisingly complex. And if anything, that's maybe the problem with it. You want a really lighthearted, everybody's you know, laughing and whooping and hooting and hollering while you're rolling, if you bust or not. But this game requires a fair bit of work to explain all the intricacies. Once you get those intricacies, the decisions are very, very interesting and insanely dramatic because you can really shoot the moon and it could totally blow up in your face, or you could come out on the other side with major stuff. And really, about the only thing that I think is missing from this design is to really lean into that Vegas feeling even more. And when I've got the dice and I'm rolling and re-rolling, it feels like the other player should have some tokens they can use to say, oh, before you re-roll, I'm going to bet on your outcome. It feels like, you know, if that one little thing were added, wow, this would really come to life even more. Because that is, when it's not your turn, you're just waiting for your turn to come around. And it'd be nice if you had a little bit invested, oh, I see you're shooting the moon. I'm going to bet against you. There's no way you're actually going to hit your goal for that. Something like that would have pushed this even to a higher level. But it is a sharp game. 
Uh, and it's interesting, I played it at Dice Tower West originally with a bunch of people, and um, you know, with the right group of people, people who are looking for a more complex thing. Hey, I was in Vegas, and, uh, and people had the right mindset to really just ha- go for these huge dramatic swings. I got home, I played it just with Jen, and there, in a quiet room with two quiet Yuri players, it didn't really come alive. You need people who are going to be loud and shout, uh, either when they bust or when they break really big big, and everybody else groans or claps as a result. It's a fun game, but like I said, surprisingly complex, um, which means you've really got to kind of target somebody who wants a richer, more intricate thing, but still is looking for a fast, you know, big kind of party experience. It's neat. I really enjoyed it when I played uh, down in Vegas, but with just Jen at home, uh, it wasn't a good fit for us, which is why Frankie's Rockin' Vegas is our number 21 of the month. Then we got number 20, Flying Goblin, which is a very sharp game uh, where players are flinging their little goblin meeples, cute little meeples, through the air using catapults, trying, aiming and trying to land in different rooms inside a castle that we're all laying siege to. And if you can land in the treasure rooms, you steal treasure. If you can land in the event rooms, you can trigger things like rotating the castle around so you can aim at stuff you want. Or you can knock the king off his pedestal and uh, you know steal a lot of points that way. And uh, one of the things you can steal is money. And at the end of every round, you can buy bigger and cooler and better uh, special powered goblins that function in radically different ways. So on the surface, this seems like a really simple game, but there's a surprising amount of depth as everybody races to be the first to score a certain number of points and win the game. So, I liked it a lot. If you watch my run-through, you can see me and Jen playing it together, both having a great time, and I made some amazing shots. But ultimately, this is... We are not the target audience for this. This would be an amazing game to play with my niece and nephew. And we're thinking, don't tell them. Um, Ron, don't tell them if we're... uh, We're we're thinking about actually sending it down to them because I think they'll have a hoot with it. And, uh, you know, again, I mean, this is a great family game. Very silly, very fun, very fast. uh, And a fair amount of dexterity-based skill of aiming these things and, you know, trying to aim low or go for big arcs and land inside the tower. Neat, fun ideas. Surprising hidden amount of depth in my number 20, Flying Goblin. Then number 19, the first paid preview of a game that was on Kickstarter this month that I did was Lawyer Up. And I'll be honest, when I agreed to cover this game, I knew full well it was not going to be a game for me and Jen. Because one player, it's a two-player only game, one player is the defense, one player is the prosecutor, and it's a kind of dueling card game where we are engaged in a tug-of-war trying to sway the 12 jurors in a case. You know, uh, the, the demo version I had had a murder case. I think there's an art forgery case that comes with it as well. And this game is so expandable with more cases. But we're just playing cards. Oh, that was a really strong argument card you played. I will object to that, so your card gets thrown out. It's insanely thematic, takes a few liberties with the basic structure of how the American trial system works, but they do it to make a fun game that still feels so much like a courtroom drama that you would watch on TV or in the movie theater. And um, in spite of the fact that it is basically an area control tug of war game between two players, we could not help but get into the theme, you know, constantly shouting, objection, overruled, may I approach the bench, Uh, the defense rests, you know, all these kinds of tropes. So we just really got into it. And while I don't think it would be a long-term game for me and Jen because we don't want to sit down for an hour to an hour and a half just trying to think, all right, if I save this card, I know what you're about to do and I can completely cancel this and ruin your plans or all that. It's a little bit too conflicty for us, but in spite of that, we love the theme of my number 19. Lawyer Up. Then we have number 18, Sidekick Saga, which is a very sharp, cooperative 
uh, superhero game. Uh, actually, the story is very cool uh, because the superheroes of the city have all disappeared and only their sidekicks are left. They're not very tough or up to the challenge of, t- of taking on all the crime of the city, but they've got to, and they've got to level up as fast as possible to fill in the vacuum left by the heroes because supervillains are taking the place over. And it is a very very sharp game. There's a lot I liked here. The city is represented by a bunch of decks of cards. You move your character around. Wherever you go to, you explore that area and draw another card. And um, you know, depending on what type of cards you get, these can be upgrades or clues you can follow up on. Um, and over the course of the round, much like a Pandemic-style game, more and more bad guys are popping up all over the place, creating more and more problems. They will attack us. They will block our access to certain areas where we need to get things. And it's up to us to work together, coordinate our plans, and um, you know, and, and try to get as strong as we can. And interestingly, work our way up kind of the criminal food chain. Because off to the side of the main board, there is a pyramid that represents how you have to take out the underlings before you can take on the sub-bosses before you can finally work your way to the boss. There's a surprising amount of depth in the decision-making there of who you try to strike versus where you're trying to go as you keep control of the city and, and hopefully the whole thing doesn't fall into a panic. And I liked a lot about it. The reason it doesn't rate higher... Because honestly, this could have been one of the best cooperative superhero board games I've ever played. But for a couple of things. And I talked about them in my final thoughts. And I think even a couple of house rules could make this game go from a, uh, a mid-level 7 to a mid-level 8 on a, or, or a 3 to a 4 on a 1 to 5 scale. I think with a little bit of tweaking... And again, you can check out my run-through. I don't think I put it up yet. I think it'll go up tomorrow. Yeah, because I put up Mandala today. Um, spoiler alert, there's another game coming. Mandala on this list. So I'll talk about there the particulars. But the the raw... I mean, it's such a wonderfully thematic game. Great sense of humor. Very uh, DC Comics-inspired world. And uh, smart, interesting decisions. Just a couple of structural issues I had that I think could be fixed with just a little bit of tweaking. Which is why it didn't come in higher. It's my number 18 sidekick saga. Then we got number 17, Dwarf. This is a worker placement game that, oddly, if you only have one copy of it, is for one, two, or three players. But I guess you can buy two copies, and then it can go up to five players, I think, if you have uh, because you have more resources. This is a worker placement game where we are dwarves in an under-mountain kingdom trying to mine raw materials to convert them into treasures while fighting off all kinds of invaders. And... At its heart, it's a very, very simple game. But what's cool about it is our Undermountain Kingdom is a is a area of different stacks of cards. And over the course of the game, at the beginning of every round, we're going to draw two more cards and put them on top of the stacks. And this means our worker placement world is constantly changing and evolving. And so, you know, the uh, the place you could go to to forge the you know the mystic weapon that would score you a lot of points, it might not stick around forever. So if you can, you've got to get over there now because it could disappear in a future round. But other opportunities will show up. And of course, as you might imagine, there are special abilities you can use to manipulate these stacks of cards and bring cards that were previously buried back up to the top. Or if you're in a situation where you could uh, forge something really great and I can't, well, I could manipulate it to bury that card that you were going to go to. So this constantly changing worker placement board is very, very cool. And I liked the core game quite a bit. Although, again, like Sidekick uh, Saga before, there were a couple of choices about the core design that made it a little bit less ideal for me and Jen. I think the game is phenomenal 
as a solo game, because it has a very, very sharp system for automating an opponent who automatically blocks certain areas. And I mentioned this uh, in my final thoughts for Dwarf, which also, now I think about it, I don't think I've made that live either. Sidekick Saga and Dwarf run-throughs will be coming very, very shortly, folks. Um, so I'm spoiling this a little bit. But I talk about in the final thoughts for there, a, I think this will work great if you took the solo mode rules and applied them to the two-player game, it would suddenly really pop. Because I do think, I haven't played as a three-player game, or a four or a five, but I suspect this is a game where you really want more. Because even though it's a small kingdom, as a two-player game, the kingdom is still big enough that there's not as much tension as I would have thought. And I just want something to tighten the board up a little bit more. And I think bringing those solo mode rules into the two-player game with some tweaks could work beautifully. So... I should say, I really enjoyed this. I played this several times as a solo game before I played it as Jen with a two-player game. So maybe that colored my impression, because it's a great uh, fun... And we had a good time playing two-player, but I think it just needs a little bit of tweaking, which is why Dwarf comes in at number 17. Then we've got number 16, Eldorado, The Golden Temples. Which, again, I don't think I've made live. I'm sorry, folks. I'm really behind. Uh, I guess maybe March did affect me in some unexpected ways. But Eldorado Golden Temples, you'll see a run-through for this coming very, very, or rundown very, very soon. This is the second uh, big box expansion for the Quest for Eldorado, which is a wonderful racing deck-building game from designer Reiner Knizia. The previous one was Heroes and Hexes. And I gotta be honest... I think, overall, I like the stuff in Heroes and Hexes that it added to the core formula more than Golden Temples. The interesting thing about Golden Temples is, finally, the race isn't over once we get to Eldorado. We then continue the race inside of Eldorado, which adds a whole bunch of new cards and some new obstacles we have to deal with. And all that stuff's very nice. But one of the things it does is... Once you get inside Eldorado... And by the way, this is a standalone game. You could buy this without any previous Eldorado stuff. And then you spend the entire game... You're not in the jungle, you just spend your entire game inside the main temples. My problem is, originally, Quest for Eldorado was just a race. Everybody going from A to B, whoever does it first, wins. Now, with Golden Temples, it's a pick-up-and-deliver game, because everybody's racing to get to three different altars inside of Eldorado, pick up some Mystic Gems, and then bring them all back to the central Golden Temple, and that's how you win. And so, there's a lot of traipsing back and forth, back and forth. And while I think it would be okay in a higher player count game, the way two-player rules work for Eldorado makes this... Well, honestly, Jen, I found it to be a bit tedious. And, uh, and that was unfortunate, which is why I don't think I would... I, I'm rating Eldorado Golden Temples here as a standalone game. If I were rating it only as an expansion, it would rate much, much higher. Because if you combine Golden Temples with the original Eldorado, so your half or two-thirds of the gameplay is in the jungles where it's just a race, and then only the last little bit is a shorter pickup and deliver sequence, I think it gets a lot better. But here's the deal. I am so in love with this expansion for one main reason. It solves, ultimately, my number one problem with Quest for Eldorado, a striking lack of cards. You can't have a deck builder with giving me more variety about how new cards come in and create a different experience every time I play. With uh, Golden Temples plus the original Quest, plus Hex Heroes and Hexes if you want, but you don't need it, there are now enough cards where I don't feel like the game is only half done. And it actually has a really cool way of mixing and matching the different card sets from the different expansions. I like it a lot. So just for that, as an expansion, it's a must-have. Um, but I, I don't know if I'd want it as a standalone for it to be 
at peak fun factor, it really has to be combined with the original Quest for Eldorado. But then if you do that, it's great, and I would rate it much, much higher. But anyway, as a standalone, I rate it my number 16, the Quest for Eldorado, the Golden Temples. Then we have my number 15, Excavation Earth, which is another uh, paid Kickstarter preview that I did. I've actually filmed already, but the game doesn't go live until next week. So um, again, you're getting another little sneak peek. Maybe I should have just put this whole rundown or this roundup off for a week or so until I got everything. But anyway, no, no. Time's of the essence. I'm already a day late. So Excavation Earth is a very, very cool setting. It's thousands of years in the future. Humanity has disappeared. Earth is now a, uh, a an artifact and ruin-filled wasteland that other aliens come to to find all the artifacts of our ancient, long-lost civilization and society. And then they uh, try to sell them on an artifact market. And so this is an uh, a, a market game where you are trying to collect the resources you need and sell them to the highest bidder before the economy in that particular thing you're uh, collecting crashes and suddenly all the work you did isn't worth much. And it is very sharp. The presentation is gorgeous. I, I love the sci-fi setting. And I love... There's an interesting thing about the market that's different than pretty much any other market game I've ever played. It's very, very standard. You save up, you get a lot of whatever it is you're trying to sell, you sell all the stuff into the market, and then that market is depressed, and nobody else wants to sell that stuff for a while until they can build back up the value. That's pretty par for the course with these store games. But in this game, when I sell a bunch of ancient Godzilla toys uh, to these aliens who think they are rare and valuable artifacts, the market doesn't drop out right away. Instead, there's kind of this holding pattern where other players still have a chance to jump in before the, uh, you know, the, it, the, the market bottoms out for those particular. And that is a very interesting twist that I liked quite a bit. Plus, I also like the fact that the core gameplay here is multi-use cards. Every turn you've got a hand of cards, you're going to play two on your turn, and those cards could be used for their color or for their icon, which means they give you access to different places on ancient Earth or you know abandoned Earth to collect stuff or interact with certain things, or they give you access to the markets where you're trying to sell stuff. And if all that weren't enough, there's this whole other side game where there's a mothership, and that's where um, you can send your workers when they're not actually engaging in trade in the market. They can be giving you access to special powers. It's a sharp game. There's a lot of stuff going on. It's from designer Dave Turchi, and he's uh, definitely becoming a very hot, well-known commodity. And um, while ultimately, for Jensen, my taste... As a two-player game, there wasn't as much market volatility as we would have liked. I suspect at higher player counts, the market would be shifting a lot more and create a lot more excitement. Jan and I found that our other problem was we could be really cutthroat to each other and you know undercut each other a lot. So we tended to stay away from each other and, oh, you're focusing on those artifacts, I'm focusing on these artifacts. And then we really felt like as a two-player game where we weren't being, you know, uh, you know, trying to you know outdo each other. There wasn't enough market volatility, and I would have loved to see some other element come in to mix it up. This might be another case where the ultimate solo rules that are being developed, if they could be applied to a two-player game, might give us what we needed to be able to rate this a little bit higher. Or alternatively, play with more players. Market simulations generally benefit from a higher player count because more people buying and selling uh, and changing the value of things in the market creates a more interesting dynamic game experience. So... There, I mean, the game is gorgeous. The, the design is really, really smart. Um, I got fingers crossed that that solo game, like Dwarf of Ford, could maybe um, give that little bit of extra juice to the two-player experience of my number 15, Excavation Earth, which uh, is going live on Kickstarter next week, I believe. Then we have number 14. 
Canvas. This was another paid Kickstarter preview for a game that was originally supposed to go live last month, but they have delayed it, which is why you haven't seen the run through yet. And you probably won't. I don't know if they, I think they're now planning on launching later on in the month of April, so you'll see it soon. But I'll still talk about it now, although, like with all of these paid previews, folks, remember, I was paid to give my opinion, so you should take uh, my subjective views with a grain of salt, or ultimately just watch the preview videos I made so you can decide for yourself if they look like fun. That's just always a given with all of these paid previews I'm doing. But anyway, what did we think? I liked it a lot. Um, we are racing to make three um, masterworks. So we have these canvases that we are taking, we are drafting using a system very, very reminiscent of Small World, which is a system I really love, or Century Spice Road as a more recent version where, hey, if there's a card I don't want, I can skip over it by giving up some resources to get one later, but then that makes that card more attractive to other players. Anyway, we're collecting these cards that are transparent plastic cards that show elements of a masterwork. And ultimately, once I've gotten three of of them. I can have more than three, but once I've got at least three, I can combine them all to make a, a, a work of art on my canvas, and I will score points based on how I mixed and matched the different art elements. It's very sharp, very fun, surprisingly thinky. Jen and I, if there's, if there's one problem we have with it, so what kept it from being a little bit higher is it could be very analysis paralysis prone. Jen really spent a lot of time crunching on it. But we still had a great time doing that. Uh, and it's, it was probably okay, because it was a fairly quick game. It, it doesn't take very long to get three canvases made, but trying to decide, okay, I've got five different pieces of art, I'm going to put three of them together to make this canvas. How can I leverage these? Which ones match the best? Not to make the most beautiful work of art, but to make the highest scoring piece of art, especially considering the fact that every time you play, there are different global objectives that everybody's chasing after to try to make certain types of art by combining certain things. Very sharp game. Um, you know, again, it was a paid preview, but we liked it a lot. I highly recommend watch for it as it uh, comes out later. Like I said, the only reason it didn't rate higher is very analysis paralysis. But for some people, that's a very good thing. That's my number fourteen, canvas. Then we move on to my number thirteen, succulent. Succulent. For those who uh, might have missed it, succulent. I don't know why. This is a very sweet, elegant. Smooth playing, uh, tile drafting, worker placement, tile laying game about creating a succulent garden, creating clippings to complete projects and score a lot of points, get special powers along the way. Um, from um, J. Alex uh, Kevern, who is fast becoming one of my biggest designers to watch. I've loved his other puzzly designs, and this is another beautiful, elegant, sharp puzzle with surprising amounts of depth. So, why did I shout succulent? I don't know what was wrong with me this month, folks. I had to film my run-through for it four times before I got it right. Every time I made some big, massive rules blunder. And um, I'm very, very happy with the final video. Maybe I should do all of my run-throughs four times to get the best version of it, because I, I do think the rundown shows a very good job of capturing the fun, and because it's so surprising, so thinky, great components uh, from a great designer and a great publisher. I liked everything about it. Uh, it's only at number 13, because there were a lot of really great games this month, uh, and which I'm going to continue now. After number 13, Succulent, let's talk about number 12, Steampunk Rally Fusion which was another paid Kickstarter preview for another game that was supposed to come out in March, but because of the change in the world circumstances, got pushed back. I believe they are planning on launching Steampunk Rally Fusion 
in April now. I don't have an exact date yet, so you'll be able to see my run-through for it soon. Um, or, But if you don't want to wait, go watch my run-through for the original Steampunk Rally when it was on Kickstarter years ago. This new expansion, although it functions as a standalone game, so you don't need to have the original, or I'm sure the Kickstarter will let you pick up both. It's another great, great game. This is a card drafting game, like Seven Wonders or Sushi Go, where the cards we're drafting for are pieces of a crazy steampunk jalopy that we are trying to keep running as fast as we can because we're all engaged in a race. Whoever crosses the finish line first wins. So this expansion adds two new racetracks, one through Machu Picchu and one through Mars. A whole bunch of new real-world inventors, which is always one of the coolest things about this. And a bunch of new cards that you can mix and match with the original game, but also work as a standalone. And some very, very cool new roadblocks that appear on the racetrack. So this, you know, if, if you look at it as an expansion, it just improves everything. Um, if you look at it as a standalone... I might, I think maybe I enjoyed some of the elements in the original Steampunk Rally more than here, but there were still very, very cool new things... Um, in this game. If anything, I think uh, some of the obstacles you can run into kind of up the luck factor a little bit more. Original Steampunk Rally, you could see coming way off in the future what type of stuff you were going to run afoul of. Here, there are kind of uh, like, oh, as soon as somebody moves into the space, you flip the card and then everybody finds out how they're going to be affected. And whoever happened to flip that first, well, that could be good or bad for you, but you've allowed everybody else to know what's coming. And that was fine. I just kind of did feel like I would have liked to always know what's coming. Because that's more like how the original game worked. But that's a minor complaint. Uh, because I love the original Steampunk Rally. I loved all this new stuff. And I haven't confirmed this, but there are now so many new cards that have been added. If you combine both sets, I wonder if it would be feasible and it wouldn't break the balance of the game if we were allowed, if we could just take out all of the aggressive mess with your opponent, you know, give them a flat tire type cards so you can focus only on cards that make you stronger and faster. Because that's only really been my only true complaint about Steampunk Rally is there were some nasty take that cards that I could do without. There are so many cards now, I think I could maybe get rid of them finally. Uh, so anyway, that's a paid preview coming soon for my number 12, Steampunk Rally Fusion. Oh, I forgot to mention the Fusion Dice. They are so awesome. They are huge game changers, and I love them. You'll be able to find out more when my video comes out, when the Kickstarter goes live. Next up, number 11. Another paid preview for a game that is on Kickstarter. Its Kickstarter has launched last week. Or no, was it earlier this week? Um, it is a cute little micro-card game called Squire for Hire. Well, this is the uh, first standalone expansion, so you can mix and match with the original, or uh, just use the new one by itself. It's Squire for Hire Mystic Runes. And... I missed the original Squire for Hire when it came out a couple of years ago, and I'm kind of bummed about that because I love this game. Although, again, folks, paid preview. Please remember, uh, these are my subjective opinions, but take them with a grain of salt. Again, I love this game. And if you don't believe me, go check out the preview video I did so I can show you just how much fun it is. This, this whole game is 18 cards. Um, and the cards are all two-sided. On one side is a little grid that has um, adventure equipment for a fantasy adventurer that you're trying to stack all these cards together to show what's in your backpack, your adventurer's backpack. Because the more stuff you have, the more quests you can accomplish to get more loot. The other side of every card is a quest you can complete. So on your turn, you're going to flip up a card that's uh, on the back side of a card that says, hey, if you if you have the, the right type of loot in your bag, if you've been able to stack it together with this cool, like, puzzly gameplay uh, cards playing mechanism, then you can complete this quest and get more loot. And um, it's a very, very fun, sharp, 
puzzly little game. My only complaint about it is there can be a little bit of luck of the draw, just a little bit, but honestly, we didn't mind because this is a 10 or 15 minute game. Uh, and again, like Dwarf before it, if you buy just one copy, it's a solo game, and it's great solo or two-player, but if you have Mystic Runes plus the original, you can combine them together, and then it can go up to three or four players, which is great. Um, but yeah, this is a wonderful... Uh, you know, coming off the heels, I talked last month, or maybe it was the month before, about Sprawopolis and Circle of Wagons, two other excellent... Uh, micro-games, uh, where you just have a deck of cards and you're trying to stack them together in a puzzly way. This does the same thing, but with a fantasy setting, and it really changes up the gameplay, and it's super sharp. Go check out my run-through, uh, because that was my paid preview of my number 11, Squire for Hire Mystic Runes. Then we have my number 10, Paris. This is another paid preview. I think the Kickstarter might be over by now, or maybe it's, got, it's still got a couple days left. I'm not quite sure because it was from earlier in the month. But, oh my gosh, folks, it's my number 10 of the month as a paid preview. Uh, this is the latest from Kramer and Kiesling working together again. Sadly, I missed their Okavongo, which came out, I think, last year. I really want to play that one, too. I don't think I'd played a, co a collaboration from them since... What was it? Um, the, the Rome game? I, it hardly matters. Long story short, this is a brilliant game. Whenever uh, Michael Kiesling and Wolfgang Kramer, Kramer work together... They just make some of the most beautiful, gorgeously elegant gameplay mechanisms you've ever seen. Because this game, it's basically a uh, worker placement game. Um, but it's a worker placement game, kind of like a Gizia, where you're on a river. Every time you place a worker, from that point on, if you want to move that worker and place it again, you have to move forward. You can never go back. So the longer you use a given worker, the more you're cutting off options that you've left behind for other players. But the interesting thing is, a Gizia, and there's some other games that do that system too, gives you one river. This game gives you six. And you're sending workers on all these... Well, they're not really rivers. They are districts in Paris during the explosion of growth it had at the turn of the century. And um, the Belle Epoque, I believe it was called, from reading the rulebook. And uh, it's super sharp, because players are kind of working semi-collaboratively to watch these districts build up. And as these districts build up, those become worker placement spots that we can send our workers, which represents us investing in the development of the city. And again, once you've uh, invested in this little cafe, but then you move on to the hotel, you can never go back to that cafe, and you've opened it up for somebody else to grab it. It's very sharp. And you will see that if you go check out my uh, preview for my number 10 of the month, Paris. Then we move on to uh, number 9. A Kingdom Builder Caravans. I've actually had this expansion for Kingdom Builder for years. And I've wanted to play it, but... I never have the chance. I'm always having to play whatever came in new, whatever publishers have sent me. I got to get those things played. Games I bought years ago, I never get a chance to play those. But Kingdom Builder Caravans has been sitting as the number one most thumb games at request.rado.com for a little while. So that finally gave me the excuse to get this expansion out that Jen and I have wanted to play forever, and I loved it. I was reminded just how much I have fallen in love with Kingdom Builder all over, and I just want to play it, play it, play it over and over and over again. Uh, it is, it's, it's not a standalone. You can't mix and match. It is just an expansion. And it adds some new terrain tiles. It adds new powers. It does all the things you would expect an expansion to do. But the most interesting thing about this is Kingdom Builder, if you don't know it, is a game where every turn you've got a card that says you can build a house in this type of terrain, and you have to add it somewhere on the map, but you're, you're limited by what the card says. You're also limited by what you've done in the past. So it's a game full of really tough decisions, and you have to be very, very smart. Go watch my original run-through to uh, leverage and, and give, give yourself a sense of freedom within those tight constraints. 
But the interesting thing is the point scoring in Kingdom Builder always happens at the end of the game. We all try to build this awesome little armada of houses so that we can hit these in-game scoring opportunities. Caravan introduces the idea of scoring opportunities that happen throughout the game. And this so radically changes the feel of the game. Uh, and a nice thing we found is it makes it much less cutthroat than it used to be. Because in the original game, if I can see you are going for um, something that'll score you a lot of points at the end of the game, I can adjust my building to cut you off. And in a two-player game, me cutting you off is the same as me scoring those points that you failed to score. So Jen and I found we enjoy it anyway, but it's a little bit more cutthroat. But with these new insta-scoring things, it becomes a much more live-and-let-live game. And we liked it. We loved it anyway. And this new Caravans, it's not new anymore. I think it was like the first expansion that ever came out. But it makes me so want to play the other expansions that have come out or get the big box or something. And actually, as an aside, this is not a paid preview, folks. But right now, um, there is a new version of Kingdom Builder called Winter something or other. Yeah, just do a search for on, kick, on kickstarter.com for Winter Board Game and you'll find it. Um, and it's apparently the same core ideas of Kingdom Builder, but they have changed changed a lot of the basics, made it a much more complex game. There's a lot more stuff going on. It's all set in winter now. And I, I mean, I'm, it's just a coincidence that that went on Kickstarter at the same time I was getting to revisit old caravans. But that makes me Jones. I'm probably, before it's over, I'm probably going to go on ahead and back this new winter one. But again, I was not paid for that. That I, I would have loved to cover it, but Queen never contacted me about it. But anyway, sorry, that's all as an aside. My number nine of the month was Kingdom Builder Caravans. Oh, and by the way, if you're looking for a run-through of that, sorry, we did record ourselves playing it, but only backers of my show on Patreon at the, what is it, the uh, Rest and Relax level, uh, they get to watch when I, every month, Jen and I film a video of a run-through that um, we call it our R&R game, and only people who back at the R&R level get to see those. So, um, but hey, it was just an expansion. You can go watch my original run-through if you want to know more about Kingdom Builder, but that's number nine. Kingdom Builder Caravans. Number eight is... Oh, wait. Before we move on to number eight, back to... Uh, I should say, earlier on, uh, what was it? Gloomy Graves and Frankie Rock in Vegas. You will not find run-throughs of those either. Jen and I played them, but I did not film any run-throughs or rundowns or anything for them, just so you know. So this is probably about the extent of the uh, coverage. Kingdom Builder Caravans, Gloomy, Gloomy Graves, and Frankie Rock in Vegas are going to get on the show. Um, but now, let's finally move on to number eight, Santa Monica. Oh boy, this is a good one. This is a car drafting, and then you, uh, you know, tableau building game where we are trying to make the best beachfront boulevard in Santa Monica, California. And this is sharp. It's from the designer of Cat Lady, which was a neat little card drafting game that we kind of liked, but it was too light for us. Not so here. This is... I want to say his name is Josh. I have to look that up. But um, it's a, it's such a sharp design. The uh, the The... Art is lovely, but uh, you know, in this kind of clean, laid-back, chillaxed uh, vibe it gives off. But this is so sharp because every card you grab has the huge potential for either scoring points or triggering points opportunity off of adjacent cards you play to. So the draft to get these cards is a really tense decision, and how you lay these cards out in your own boulevard is a hugely tense decision. And if all that weren't enough, you over the course of the game get more 
more and more people showing up on your boulevard wanting to walk around and see all the attractions you've done. And you will lose points if you don't make those people happy at the end of the game. So there's a surprising amount to think about in a very sharp, fun little game. We were really blown away by this. And I think as this reaches wide distribution, this is going to be a pretty big hit for publisher AEG. Joss Wood, I believe, is the designer on it. We really like this a lot. That's why it made my number eight in a very hot month, uh, Santa Monica. Then continuing on, number seven is The Crew. And this, folks, I'm just calling it right now, although I'm not the only one to do it, this is going to win the Spiel des Jahres this year. It has to. This is such a brilliant, cooperative, trick-taking game where players are astronauts on a deep space mission to find the mysterious Planet Nine. But it's a fairly abstract game because really what we're doing is on a given uh, chapter of our mission, the game comes with 50 chapters, we are basically trying to cooperatively win a series of tricks in a standard trick-taking game. You know, where whoever leads the trick plays a card and then everybody else has to follow with the same suit. And if they can't, they can play whatever they want. If they play a trump, they beat the lead suit and all that kind of trick-taking stuff. This takes all those ideas. One, makes it cooperative. Two, makes it an imperfect communication cooperative game because you have this very, very cool idea of how you can communicate in the vacuum of space. Yeah, I can take one of the cards from my hand, put it on the table, and put a token that says, this is my highest value in this suit, my lowest value in this suit, or my only card in this suit, and that's all I'm allowed to tell you. And from that, you have to intuit whether you can win this trick that you need to win because you have to be the one that wins the trick with the green four. Whereas I've got to be the one that wins the trick with the few seven. Uh, you know, so it's kind of an abstract trick-checking, but there is a theme that I do appreciate. There's a story you can play through, but all of that aside, what I found is this is an amazing way to introduce trick-taking ideas to somebody like Jen and I who are not familiar with them at all. And it's a great trick-taking gateway game, but that aside, it is just brilliant. I, I don't know why anybody would not be able to enjoy this game. And um, because of that, I didn't cover it alone. Go watch my final thoughts. I was joined by Shay Parker of RTFM, a great YouTube channel, and he and I talked back and forth about it. So I wanted to have a second opinion because I've mostly played it two-player, and I wanted to hear about the higher player count because trick-taking games are traditionally three-player minimum. Plus, Shay is a crackerjack trick-taking player. He's a huge trick-taking fan, so I knew he'd have that perspective as well. So it was a really fun conversation we had. Go check it out. But anyway. Or just go check out the run-through itself and decide for yourself if the crew looks good for you. But it's sitting pretty at our number seven of the month, The Crew. Then there is uh, number six. This is another paid preview for a game that um, was supposed to go on Kickstarter last month but haven't yet. I believe it should be next week. I think. Don't quote me. But soon you should see a video from me for Planet Unknown. And wow, folks. This is an amazing Tetrisy polyomino uh, tile laying game that I love to bits. This, you know, I've only played a prototype of it, so it's a little early to say. And like I said, this was a paid preview. Just once again, remember, I was paid to cover it, so you can take that with my subjective means with a grain of salt. But this has got to be, this might be my number one polyomino tile laying game. And that's saying something, because ever since Patchwork came out a few years ago, there have been so many very, very well-designed polyomino-style games that have just been coming out over and over and over again. But this one... Oh, it's hard-pressed to put into words just how great it is. It feels like, what would Terraforming Mars be if it were a Tetris-style tile-laying game? Instead of, you know, a, a car... Because... You know, and instead of hex grids, you know, terraforming the planet, you're putting, you're trying to 
puzzle together all these things. You're building your own planet too, so you're not having to worry about other people blocking you out of stuff. But every tile you lay increases uh, various engines you've got that that unlock more and more special bonuses. And that's the uh, this is a game where a single play with a single tile could unlock a chain reaction of stuff that just feels so amazing because I unlocks this, which unlocks this other thing that lets me do a thing that lets me unlock this thing, and it's just great. Uh, watch my run-through for it, my preview for it, and you can see just how much fun it is. Uh, this would probably be my wife's number one game of the month, quite frankly. It's my number six, uh, which is saying something. And again, Oh, you can't watch my video yet because it hasn't gone live. I think, like I said, it goes live. So this is like a sneak peek of something. It was supposed to come next month, last month. It will be coming this month. So keep an eye out, folks, for my upcoming preview of Planet Unknown. My number six. Then, number five. I know this one is up because I just made it live today. Mandala. And here's the deal, folks. This was a... I had the opportunity to pick this up last year and cover it, and I completely blew it off. Because it looked like a completely abstract card game that I would have zero interest in, because if it doesn't have theme, I'm not interested. And, I mean, to be fair, this is kind of at the Azul level of thematic integration. In this game, players are working semi-collaboratively, although it's a competitive game, to make beautiful mandala sand sculptures. And um, once a sculpture is completed, like the real mandala sand art, it is wiped away. And it's basically an area control game, because depending on how much I contributed to the art versus how much you contributed to the art, we have the opportunity to score points out of it. And at any given time, there's actually two different mandalas we're contributing these sand cards to. And it's basically two different fronts of area control battles. But the beautiful thing about this game, I didn't think we were going to like it all because I played so many two-player battle line inspired, oh, I play my card to my side of the line, you play your card, and whoever ultimately plays the best wins. I've seen enough of that. I thought Mandala would just be more with with pretty cards and a tacked-on theme. But here's the deal. Actually, I think the theme integration is nice. It's still fairly abstract, but it's great theme integration, considering. And the beautiful thing is, after a Mandala is scored, it's not just whoever played the most wins. It's not a simple area majority thing. Instead, everybody gets a piece of the pie that everybody contributed to. And I love that. And so that's half of what makes this game so special. The other half is the way it scores, which is kind of hard to get your head around. Watch my run-through to get a better idea or my rundown for it. Oh my gosh, this game is great. It's so great that I definitely regret not having played it last year. Because if I had, I am very confident it would have made it into my top 10 games of 2019, which I did back in December. Now, as it happens, I'm going to update my top 10 this month. And you might see me talking about Mandala again, because I want to play it a little bit more. I need to play some other games, and I wouldn't be surprised if it punches its way in, because it is that good. This might be the best two-player-only game I've ever played. Or it's certainly up there. It's in the upper echelon, and it's phenomenal. My number five of the month, Mandala. And it's not my number five! This was a really good month for amazing games, folks. Let's move on to my number four. Um, this is the Captain America and Thor expansion packs for Marvel Champions. And I considered not actually putting this on the list because here's the deal. I actually played a an online game, uh, you know, a virtual distance telecommuting game of Marvel Champions a few days ago. Was it last week? I don't remember now. Uh, all the days are blending together, as they might be for a lot of people. But anyway, I got on uh, the channel Gaming Rules, which is hosted by Paul Grogan, and he and I sat down and played a game of the Green Goblin expansion, which I talked about in a previous... uh, that I really love the Green Goblin expansion. And it was both of our first time. First time I ever played Captain America, first time he played Thor. 
and I loved it. I, every time I talk about Marvel Champions, the, the fundamental thing that I keep coming back to is how amazed I am that within the combines of relatively simple gameplay mechanisms compared to other games of its ilk, because this is a cooperative... Uh, fight all the bad guys by playing cards to build up interesting and complex combinations of effects while they're throwing interesting, complex combinations of effects at us. Uh, you know, like Lord of the Rings or uh, the card game or Arkham Horror the card game. You know, those sorts of things. Lots of games out there like this. Um, but the thing that continually amazes me as a lifelong comic book fan, a Marvel comic book fan, is how well this game really makes the theme of Marvel Comics come alive. And the number one thing I've all... that it, Marvel Champions was my number two game of 2019. The only thing that kept it from being number one is I wanted to see... With more content, because of course this is a living card game, more content is coming out all the time, would the developers be able to come up with new and interesting ideas within the confines, or would it start feeling samey as more stuff is released? I am so happy to say, every new thing I've played with this, including Captain America and Thor, just get better and better. Uh, you come up with completely new and interesting game styles that are thematically so well tied to the source material of Marvel Comics. I love it. I love it. I... Having played this, I have to think, does Marvel Champions push its way into my number one of the year, um, you know, supplanting Merkaibo? It might. I have to think about it more. But in the meantime, folks, all I'm saying is I had a phenomenal time. And if you want to, you can go watch. It was a live stream in front of an internet studio audience. You can go check out... Um, it, uh, hit that eye up in the top right corner of the screen, and you can watch me and Paul try to save New York City from the evil machinations of Green Goblin. Or No, I didn't put an eye up there. Just go to marvel.rado.com. So I made a shortcut for this, so you can just get there. Have a fun time watching us have an amazing time uh, playing Marvel Champions as Captain America and Thor... Those two expansions combined are my number four of the month. Then my number three of the month. Jen and I uh, actually had two R&R sessions because I was uh, late. I'd, I missed an R&R session in an earlier month, so Jen and I did two this month. Which uh, And for our other one, because we did uh, Kingdom, Builder, Kingdom Builder Caravans, my number three game of the month that I played was Agricola, the revised edition. Because um, I'm a lifelong Agricola fan. Agricola has been in my top five games forever. I think it's my number four ranked at the moment. Maybe number five. I forget. But I love Agricola so much. But I'd only ever played original Agricola. And, you know, Revised Agricola came out a few years ago. And they made some changes and whatnot. And um, I've wanted to see it forever. And I've been waiting for a review copy. A review copy never seemed to come. And ultimately, one of my high-level Patreon backers who gets to choose gets to say, I want you to cover this game. And he said, I want you to cover Agricola Revised Edition. And some of the expansion content, I said, okay, boss, you got it. I got online, ordered a copy. It showed up. Jen, I played it. And I'm in love with Agricola all over again. Although I never fell out of love. But... I'm going to say, if you have to choose between seeking out the original Agricola or the new revised edition, I think I like the revised edition more. It's not perfect. One thing I was really surprised by when Jen and I played it, we ran out of resources. I don't think I've ever had that happen with regular Agricola. It does have, you know, 5x tokens, so you can use those if you run low on... Uh, but that was really surprising. But I love... The kind of representation, it's definitely doesn't feel quite so old fashioned and out of date as it used to, with like, you know, kind of puzzle piece, how you snap the boards together and all that. Uh, but of course, the gameplay hasn't changed at all, other than 
I very, very, very much appreciate the special two-player variant that was always kind of a semi-quasi unofficial variant that you could add this extra card to kind of loosen it up a little bit so it wasn't quite so cutthroat. They have now made that an official thing. There's like this whole extra board that you can use for two and I think for three-player games as well that gives you a lot, uh, like gives you access to stone and other things right from the beginning of the game. And now that it's officially part of the rules, just that one change makes Agricola Revised better than a regular Agricola for us as a two-player game. Now, we actually played it with the third expansion, the Coriolis, the Sea Deck expansion. And I guess I would say... If you only want to buy Agricola, just one box, you no expansions, you should probably buy regular Agricola because it comes with more cards. But if you buy new Agricola Revised and either the A, was it the um, Artifacts, the Bubblicus, or the Coriandrus, whatever, the A, B, or C deck, new Agricola destroys original Agricola for its presentation, for this extra two-player consideration that didn't that only semi-officially existed before. And uh, we loved it. Another thing, by the way. I've had, for years now, the Agricola colored or pre-painted minis that come in five different colors. And we uh, got to check those out as well. And I love them. They are so good. Now, I know they are spendy. Make no mistake about it. And the weird thing is, each one of these pack of five, you get the green ones or the red ones or whichever ones you get, so you can play with pre-painted minis instead of just like little uh, cardboard, or you know, not cardboard, uh, wooden meeples. Although the wooden meeples that came with the game are perfectly fine. They're actually very sweet and charming, actually. But anyway, the uh, miniatures are great. And there's two things about them that I wanted to say. One, these are much, these are the best pre-painted minis I've seen. I've seen them in other games like uh, Claustrophobia or um, uh, Star... Ar these are almost as good as Star Wars. Uh, was it? I'm thinking of, they're better than Star Trek Attack Wing and not, not quite as good as Star Wars X-Wing. They're almost that good. They are really top of the line. Much better. I mean, often when you get pre-painted minis, you know, the, you get the colors bleeding from one area to another. The eyes are off-center. If you look at them close, you're like, oh, I almost would have preferred this unpainted. But uh, we were very, very impressed. Not, you know, nowhere near as good as a professionally painted mini, of course, but still... Leaps and bounds above the pre-painted minis I've seen in most other games. So, they, and they really enhance the experience. Now, the other thing is these uh, little color uh, expansions, the green, the red, the purple, etc. They also come with little mini decks of cards. And I know some people were very upset for, I don't want to have to pay $20 for a pack of five minis and a bunch of cards. I just want the cards. I don't want the minis. Don't worry, folks. As I understand it, all those cards will eventually be available. Well, a lot of them are available now in the C deck that got released last year. And this year, we're going to get the D deck released. So all those... You don't need to buy these miniatures. Well, that makes it kind of weird, too, because the miniature packs are expensive. And strictly speaking, you're only paying for the minis now because you'll want to get the cards. They were just... they, they These came with previews of C and D cards. Now you're going to get all those C and D cards when you get the C and D expansion. So I guess I'm going to say I really like the miniatures... And, uh, and again, they're very, very nice. Much better than most pre-painted minis. And I don't know if they're worth the cost. But I think I, think I wouldn't mind having two sets. So Jen and I... Because we, we only play two players, so we only need the purple and the green. And we're set. We're satisfied. It'd be tough to buy all of them, though. But it was very, very interesting. I was glad. I finally got them because they'd been gathering dust. Because I hadn't played Agricola in forever. So my number three of the month... That was all very long-winded, uh, is Agricola Revised Edition. Number two of the month, 
uh, is a another game like Kingdom Builder Caravans and Agricola Revised Edition and uh, Gloomy Graves and Frankie Rock in Vegas, where Jen and I played it, but I didn't film it. So, uh, sorry, don't go looking for a run-through of Gloomhaven Forbidden Circles. And this is the standalone expansion for Gloomhaven that I've had for quite a while, and I've really wanted to play it. And I've finally broke down. We just didn't play it, though, because we had three more missions in Gloomhaven we had to get through. And if we could finish those three missions, we would finish the entire storyline, or the main storyline of Gloomhaven, and that's when this expansion, Forbidden Circles, picks up. You're not supposed to play Forbidden Circles until you finish the main storyline. You can, but you know the events in Forbidden Circles lead directly on from what happened in base Gloomhaven, so you're better off doing them in order. And so for the longest time, I mean, we had Jen and I, we hadn't played Gloomhaven, uh, one of our favorite games, for a couple of years, and we've wanted to. And so I finally buckled down and said, We're going to finish these three missions. Turned out it was like six, because there were some surprise things we had to do along the way. But we finally made it through there so that we could get out Forbidden Circles and start playing with the new character that comes with it and playing through these new missions. And so at this point, I've only played a couple of them. But I think that's enough for me to give my opinions. First of all, the new playable character is awesome. I absolutely love her. She is unlike anything the game has ever seen before, because all of her abilities are about manipulating the the draw piles we have. You know, the, the the piles of cards that players and the bad guys draw to modify their attacks, the decks of cards that the bad guys use so that determine what type of actions they're going to take, and a good deal of her abilities have to do with messing with those decks and just changing everything. And it is such a radically different way to play the game. I was playing as her, and I loved her. Plus, she's incredibly weak, but she can teleport like nobody's business. And so she's just blinking all over the place, messing with stuff. So she is ultimately 100% a support character. She, I guess if she, if we were to level her up, you can get her to higher levels and she can start getting some pretty effective... But you have to know, going in, her job is to support. She is not a frontline character. She's just zipping around, teleporting, looting, and just messing with probabilities in the coolest way possible. So she is terrible if you want to be a frontline fighter. But if, like me, you love support. I've always played a cleric first and foremost, and just stay behind and keep everybody else going. And that's what she does in a way I've never seen before in Gloomhaven, and I loved playing her. Now, we, like I said, we played through the first couple of missions, and I took some peeks at what's coming up ahead, because I wanted to talk about them too. So, the coolest thing about the missions in uh, Gloomhaven Forbidden Circles is they really introduce lots of very cool new ideas. Because original Gloomhaven, 90% of all your missions are just go here and kill everybody. And that's how you win. Kill everybody. And they're just very straightforward. There's nothing wrong with that. It means all of your strategic planning and puzzle solving has to do with how do we kill everybody. In Forbidden Circles, they've changed it up. A lot of the missions... Gosh, I almost want to say like over half of the missions. Have you, in addition to, or instead of killing everybody, you've got to achieve all these very specific goals. Destroy certain things, take things from one place to another, all kinds of much more complex things. And what that does is... It really makes Gloomhaven a much more complex game because it's still just as complex to figure out, right, how do we play these cards to deal with all the bad guys? But now we have all this extra complexity where we have to solve these environmental puzzles. Now, some people hate this and absolutely despise it. I gotta say, I like it a lot. Because after all the uh, billions of monsters I've killed in Gloomhaven, it was so nice to be presented with challenges that make us do something else. That put some of the puzzle-taking from just how to kill stuff into doing other things. I liked it. It was a breath of fresh air. But I totally understand why some people say, this is not my Gloomhaven. I just want to go back to just killing everything 
Because that's where my sweet spot, that's where my zen mode is. This game won't give you that. So it's something to know going in. It really changes the DNA of what it feels like to play Gloomhaven. And another thing, all of the puzzle content in these new missions all revolve around this new character. So if you don't like playing a support character, um, the problem is this expansion makes somebody play a support player at the character, and that character must stay alive in every single mission to win. And uh, so you can't make strategic decisions about them getting KO'd or any of that stuff. So it is a much more restrictive game. Regular Gloomhaven gives you the freedom to play however you want. This one, you are given, this is the problem, you have to solve this problem, and you kind of have to figure out, almost kind of solve the puzzle that we put forward to how to best play this. Some people hated it. We really liked it. It's my number two of the month, Gloomhaven Forbidden Circles, and that's kind of my final thoughts on that. I do look forward to going back for more, though, because for us, it's exactly what we wanted. And that leaves only the number one. And if you hadn't guessed earlier, you probably know by now, my number one of the month is another paid preview for a little game, a little big game, called Frosthaven. Gloomhaven 2 is finally here. I got to play uh, an assortment of three missions from the sequel that is on Kickstarter right now. It's already, by this point, it's probably made $6 million. I'm not exaggerating. I don't, like I looked into, yesterday it was up to $4 million and it was just climbing, climbing, climbing. This is going to be the biggest monster hit of the year. And if you know Gloomhaven and you love Gloomhaven, I do not believe you will be disappointed. And if you were disappointed, if you were one of those players who got Forbidden Circles, you were excited for more and it gave you this very different thing and you're like, ah, where's the thing I really loved? Frosthaven gives you that. Frosthaven is definitely a Gloomhaven 2.0 because the core rules are 95% the same. Nothing really changed about how monsters work, how initiative works, how play works. A bunch of new features were added, like um, changing seasons that will modify what type of road events, depending on what time of year it is when you go adventuring. Uh, you know, what time of year it is in the in the game, not in the actual world. Or um, Frosthaven, which is a little snowy outpost far to the north of Gloomhaven, has yet to be built up. So in between missions, you are actually directly involved in steering the uh, evolution of this little town. Because Another thing is, when you loot stuff, you no longer only get gold. Now you can get components that you can use to craft items. And if you're not using those components to craft items, you're using them to build buildings to give you access to more stuff in between missions. So there are a lot of cool new ideas brought in here. But the actual DNA of Gloomhaven remains, which is really sharp tactical gameplay. Play two cards, top action, bottom action. Don't know what everybody else is going to do. Find out at the same time and figure out how to best move forward. And... I mentioned um, relation to Forbidden Circles because while I very much appreciate that of the three missions I've seen so far, it feels like Frosthaven does a better job and doesn't just always make every single mission just be kill everybody. It does comes up with new interesting things. It doesn't go as far as Forbidden Circles did. Forbidden Circles, for some people, goes too far and takes it away from that core Gloomhaven formula. I think Frosthaven, from what I've seen, does a much better job of melding the, like I said, the zen-like killing machine of Gloomhaven with some more interesting and dynamic world objectives without going too far one way or the other. And I think it really hits that sweet spot. And that should come as no surprise because it's not like Isaac Childress has been just um, you know, sitting on his throne of money for the last five years completely ignoring. No, he's been paying attention to feedback. And I'm sure um, that is why I ultimately think if you have never tried Gloomhaven, Frosthaven, I think from what I've seen, 
is probably the better game because it's got deeper, more robust world building than Gloomhaven ever did. It's got deeper, richer, more interesting characters to play as, and it's kept all of the really great stuff, and it's got deeper, richer, more interesting missions as well. That said, I haven't got a chance to play yet. I would not suggest if you've never played Gloomhaven to start with Frosthaven because Frosthaven's design feels like it assumes you already have played Gloomhaven and you know your way around. Because, like I said, the characters you play in Frosthaven are significantly more robust and advanced and require trickier uh, strategic decision-making to, to do well with. So... It hasn't come out yet, but if you haven't played Gloomhaven, I would suggest waiting until Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion comes out, which is kind of an, a Gloomhaven introduction game that walks you through, I think, 15, 20 missions that by the time you end them, you'll be a Gloomhaven master, and then you could jump to regular Gloomhaven or Frosthaven. But if you already know and love Gloomhaven, chances are very, very high you will love Frosthaven even more. And like I said, to those who are worried because Forbidden Circles went so far outside the box, Frosthaven feels like it just came back into the box, but then stuffed that box with a lot of new stuff. A lot of great stuff. And that is my number one game of the month, Frosthaven. And phew, that's it, folks. I have now been talking nonstop for an hour and three minutes. I am very thirsty. And so I am going to end it here and say that I will see you again next month for another roundup. And I uh, hope everybody... You know, stay safe out there. Have a nice day. Talk to you later. So long. Bye-bye.